Let's turn our attention to the book of Isaiah. We'll look at two chapters today, so you need to strap in. We're going to be here for a, a, just a little minute. Uh, and <laughs> Oh, well, it just is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. And we're just going to get into the Word of God, but more importantly, we want the Word of God to get into us. Amen. And the title of the message today is The Power of Prayer. And so with that, Father, we just want to take this time and offer it to you. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear you, hearts and wills that are ready and eager to obey you. And so today we just lay ourselves before you, Lord. We put the attention of our hearts and minds upon you. And we say, God, speak, for you have our attention, Lord. Your your servant is listening, so to speak, Father. And so we would ask that just by the power of your Spirit, you would address us and that you would encourage us, and that you would edify, challenge, convict us, change us. God, have your way, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody say, you know, every now and then you'll watch a movie, right? And it opens with a real, like, nail biter. And there you are, and you're on the edge of your seat. And then suddenly, as it crescendos, something kind of happens to cause it to, it just cuts to a different scene that's more serene, more kind of set back and, and settled in. And, it, and, it, and this little caption comes up on the bottom of the screen or something. It says, six months earlier, you know. And it cuts back to what previous time that, that you were just being kind of brought into. And that's essentially what we have here in these next couple of chapters. We just witnessed, if you want to remember, the dramatic deliverance of the city of Jerusalem from the onslaught of the Assyrian soldiers. In one night, the angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 soldiers, forcing Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to retreat and remain in his own land. And now that we come upon chapters 38 and 39, it kind of finds us still in the throes of the Assyrian siege. Ladies and gentlemen, let's remind ourselves that the book of Isaiah is not by any stretch a strictly chronological rendering of the events that transpired during the prophet's life. It jumps around from time to time, and this is one of those times. And we get a little insight as to what was happening on the other side of the walls. You remember on this side of the walls was the Rabshaka, the field commander, and he's dogging, and he's daring, and he's challenging, and he's blaspheming God. And and, and, and we don't really get a feel for what was happening on the other side of the walls. Well, now we do. Hezekiah had become critically ill at a pivotal point in the nation's well-being. How many of you realize you've come to this understanding, at least it would seem, if you're anything like me, that when it comes to the seasons of our lives, man, when it rains, what does it do? It pours. And such was the case for King Hezekiah. Let's turn our attention to the very first verse of the 38th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Wow. I mean, this is not what we generally like to think of when we envision pastoral or in this case, prophetic care. You know, there you are. Imagine it. You're sick. You're lying in your hospital bed, and in walks your pastor. And man, you're thinking, oh, praise God. You know, this man's going to pray for me. But he doesn't pray for you. He doesn't anoint you. In fact, he doesn't even greet you. Instead, he just looks at you, and with all the conviction of his heart, he stares into your eyes, and he says, listen, I have a word from the Lord for you. You're going to die. And you're thinking, wait, what? And your heart sort of sinks into the pit of your stomach. Now, 
there are a few things that we want to consider right here in this very first verse. Number one, I'm just going to throw this out there, and I'm not going to linger on it too long, but contrary to what some want to teach, God will allow people to get sick, and it won't necessarily be indicative of sin in their life or a lack of faith or anything like that. Guys, we see people falling ill all throughout the Scriptures, and it's not always some deep lesson they need to learn, though sometimes it is. It's not always because of sin, though sometimes it can be. You think about a man like Job. With him, it wasn't that he was doing something wrong. It was that he was living his life right. And so God allowed him to become, for you and me, a model as it might be, of what true trust in the Lord and love for the Lord would look like to those around him, uh, to those who would come after him, to the angels of heaven, and even to the spiritual hosts of wickedness up to and including Satan himself. And God had staked his reputation on the reaction of Job saying, no, he's not serving me for what he can get from me. He's not a, a mercenary, you see. He loves me truly. doesn't matter what happens, you see. And so you never know when God may be staking His reputation upon how you're going to handle a trial, how you're going to handle a test or an illness that comes your way. And hey, though He may slay me, yet will I trust Him, yes? This is where we want to be. And Paul, the apostle, came to learn that when he was sick physically, the power of Christ spiritually was at rest upon him because he couldn't lean upon his own sufficiency He had to trust in Christ entirely. And so he said, therefore... Now, Paul was on a different level. How many of you have reached... I've not reached this level. Have you reached this level? He said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so there you are, some infirmity some distress, some affliction befalls you, it can be a losing proposition to wrestle with the why of it all. We don't always know. In the end, we resolve, listen, God, my life belongs to you. Be it through my life, my death, infirmity, affliction, whatever the case may be, be glorified in me. The next thing that we need to see is this. God is both the giver and the taker of life. The Bible is clear. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a time to which we have all been appointed outside of the rapture of the church by which each of us are going to die. The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. Again, the Bible says that it is appointed for men to die once. No reincarnation. You've been appointed to die once. And after this, the judgment. You and me, we have an appointment with death. And it's one appointment you aren't going to be late for. And you certainly aren't going to miss it. And so there was a sense in which, or there is a sense in which what 
Isaiah said to Hezekiah is a word for you and me even today. The question isn't one of, are we going to die? Listen to me. The question is, are we ready to die? Set your house in order. Is your house in order? Is your life in order? Have you established a reliance upon the Lord in your home? Have you done what you can do to set your family up to follow Christ, to walk with Christ, depend on Christ when you're gone? Guys, listen to me. Very few people ever have the, let's call it luxury, of knowing when they're going to die. My recommendation is don't delay. Begin today, if you haven't, establishing a household that honors the Lord, that looks to and trusts in the Lord. You see, as for me and my house, yeah, we will serve the Lord. And finally, let me say this, and we'll touch on it a little bit later. But this would seem to me, here in verse 1, the word that came from God to Hezekiah, this would seem to be the, what we might call the perfect will okay, of God for him. God shows him a true kindness. He, he lets him know his time is at hand. I mean, that's a grace. That is a kindness. And so he can set a godly heir in his place. He can ensure the kingdom is on a trajectory of trusting in the Lord after he's gone. And by the way, we know from other passages, we can deduct from other passages that Hezekiah... I'm going to move my mic here. Maybe. No, I'm not. Hezekiah is about... Well, he is. he's 39 years old when this happens. Okay? He's, just, he's a 39-year-old man. All right. Let's turn our attention to verse 2. And then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed, underline it, to the Lord. Is Jared up there? He took off. All right, I'm going to move my mic. Put this down here a little bit. This might help. May not. And he prayed to the Lord uh, and said, Remember me now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So you can kind of see the scene in your mind's eye. There he is, he's weeping, he turns to the wall, not so that he could sulk, but he's, he's wanting to pray, he's turning away. I mean, he's sort of, he's like he's bedridden, he wants some privacy, there's people all around him, you see, and he's looking for this edge, I need to get away, I need to pray. Perhaps he faces the temple. You read 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 30 where Solomon said, and let it be that when one is praying and they face the temple, and you, that you would hear them from heaven. And so perhaps he turns his face toward the temple. He begins to pray. He begins to cry out to the Lord. And we don't fault him for that. I mean, he's crying out that God might spare him. Listen, I doubt that many of us would differ in this at all. I mean, skin for skin, the Bible says, all that a man has will he give for his life. Self-preservation is the natural inclination of man. We want to live. But there's something we need to talk about here, and that is this. Hezekiah, look at him. He says, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And he weeps bitterly. He, he asked God to show him mercy by way of implication, by way of his walk and his works. 
He's essentially saying, God, look at how I've honored you. Look at the things I've done for you. Surely I've lived good enough in your eyes. I've done enough good to merit a little more time here on the earth. And we think, wow. I mean, that's a bold ask, isn't it? To ask God to extend your life on the basis of how good you've lived. Well, we need to remember that Hezekiah is living under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, ladies and gentlemen, this was a completely appropriate way and a valid way to pray. You just read. You can write it down and read it later. It's Leviticus chapter 26. It's Deuteronomy chapter 28. And God had covenanted with the people of Israel blessing or cursing predicated upon obedience or disobedience to His Word. David prayed by this principle on the regular. You find it in the Psalms. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. The entire Psalm 101 is all about what David will do, what he won't do. The idea being that God can look upon him, God can bless him because he's leading a righteous life before him. Nehemiah would pray this way. He said, remember me, my God, for good. Notice, according to all that I have done for this people. However, under the new covenant, this is not how we pray, nor is it the basis upon which we are blessed. Today, as believers, we are blessed on the principle of faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3. We come to God in the name of Jesus. Not by merit of our own ways or our own works, but by merit of the perfect righteousness of God's own Son, which has been imputed to us or accredited to us through faith. Now that doesn't mean we don't need to walk in obedience. Of course we do. The Bible is very clear that love for God is evidenced through obedience to God, but that is not the, the, the means by which we gain access to God's favor. I gain an audience with God by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And, and we come to Him in the name that is after the manner and in the character of Jesus. Yes, when we pray, oftentimes we say, don't we, in Jesus' name. But that's not really what Jesus meant when He said, would you ask something, you ask anything of the Father in my name? We put that like it's a uh, like the passcode to the email that gets it to heaven. It's like the postage stamp. And if you don't say in Jesus' name, I don't know if God really heard you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not true. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in His heart, in His way, after His manner. You know, when you go, uh, an ambassador goes to a foreign country in the name of the President of the United States, they're representing Him, His heart, His way, His manners. You, you understand. And so, God, I'm coming to you, in, not after my own ways, but after the heart and the name and the character of your own Son, Jesus Christ, you see. Now, one more quick observation. Hezekiah heard God's Word, but he didn't want to receive it. Today, again, though self-preservation is natural, sometimes you'll come to that place or you'll meet someone who maybe they've been ill or they're struggling with an affliction or some kind of, uh, you know, sickness. And they come to that place where they're just like, Lord, take me home, you know. 
Again, Hezekiah living under the old covenant, though there were hints of the resurrection, there was an occasional pointer, perhaps a glimpse as to what happens when we die. By and large, what would happen after we hit the grave was a mystery uh, under the old covenant. There was not the same assurance of glory in, uh, as, as it pertained to the life beyond this life. Family, there's a very important passage uh, concerning the revelation of immortality found, and I want you to go there right now. Let's t- it's an important one. Let's take it. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Take your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy, and we're going to look at the very first chapter, okay? And let's see here. Second Timothy chapter one. I've got. Oh man, maybe it's First Timothy. Let me make sure. I'm going to turn you to something, and then I'm not going to have it. Yeah, come on. I had it right down here. I even wrote the verses down for myself. Oh, wait, I'm in chapter 2. <laughs> that makes a big difference. Ah, not a blooper. It just is what it is. I turned to the wrong chapter, my friend. Show grace. I'm not a perfect man. I'm not the measure of righteousness. Second Timothy chapter 1. Let me draw your attention to verse 8. Okay, let's begin here in verse 8. Therefore, Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, notice, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Notice the plan, the purpose was given before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought to life and immor- and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see that? He brought life and immortality to light. It was shrouded in mystery. Now it becomes clear, you see, through the gospel. And this is why Paul could say that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because life and immortality was brought to light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as to where today we understand death as a graduation of sorts. So death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Hezekiah would have perceived it as like God being displeased with him. There was an uncertainty. There was a mystery. Why are you doing this, you see? And so he prays. He, he's heard God's word. He doesn't want to receive it. He doesn't want to accept it. And again, I'm not faulting him for that. We would probably all pray for a pass in this situation. But I would point you to the model of Jesus for the more excellent way. You remember, there he is 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's facing the cross. And it's, Father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, nevertheless, not as I will. Yeah? But God, as you will. It's okay, ladies and gentlemen. It's okay to say, Father, I would love to be healed. I, I want to live. I don't want this lingering injury, this affliction, whatever the case may be, but ultimately you see what I can't see. You're moving with an eye toward eternity. You know ultimately what is best for me. Your will be done. You see, that's where we want to be. Now, verse 4, And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father. I have, underline these, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now, when you read through this same account in, in 2 Kings chapter 20, you discover that Isaiah didn't even make it into the middle court. He comes, to, I mean, Isaiah, I just think that he was a hardcore guy. You know, you read through, he just did not mix, he did not mince words. He comes into the king. And we don't read that he was necessarily sent an invitation. He just kind of, God told him to go and he went and he goes in and he sees the king. And he's laying there and he says, thus says the Lord. And Hezekiah's thinking, cool, man, I'm going to, he says, uh, set your house in order because you're going to die and not live. <laughs> That's what he does. And Hezekiah goes, oh God, please remember you know, what I've done, how I've walked before you. And Isaiah is just, he's done. He said what he's had to say. And God says, turn around and go tell Hezekiah, I've, I've heard his prayer. I've seen his tears. I'm going to give him 15 years. And Isaiah knows. And he comes back. <laughs> he gets just, just, a little, just a little ways out. Now, before you say, wait a minute. God said he was going to die. Now God says he's going to live. I mean, what's happening here? Is, is Isaiah a false prophet? Is, is God, uh, you know, uh, gaslighting the king? Is he, is he bamboozling him somehow? I mean, what's, what's happening here? H how many of you have ever heard of, of, of a conditional clause? Come on, nobody's heard of that? I mean, has anyone here bought a house or a car or you've entered into a covenant, a contract with someone? Okay. And uh, you, you make certain contingencies, certain conditions that are put in the clause, right? In the contract. You know, there you are. You enter into a covenant. You enter into a contract with the bank to buy a house. And there are certain contingencies built into that contract. You make your payments. The house will be yours. You default on X number of payments. The house will be ours. I mean, you do this, it goes this way. You do that, it goes the other way, right? Well, guys, uh, God often does the same thing with His covenants, His contracts. In the book of Jeremiah, He makes it plain. He says, the instant, I, I love this, bam, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it, to plant it, if it does evil, USA, 
in my sight. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. So that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now we see this most readily in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He didn't want to go, did he? Man, he couldn't stand those Ninevites. By the way, Nineveh was the capital city. Guess what country? Come on, man. Assyria. That maybe brings into focus for you a little bit of bitterness. Even though it was a few hundred years later, some residual bitterness against the Assyrians for seeking to wipe out his nation. And he kicks against the goats, but he goes in there and he just, he just says, hey, you know what? 40 days you'll be overthrown. 40 days, judgment's coming. Here comes the overthrow of the city. And he walks out. And they all, holy smokes, and they all take to repentance in sackcloth and ashes. And God relented. Now, implicit within the decree of judgment is the invitation to repentance. That's what you need to understand. Implicit within the decree of judgment is an invitation to repentance. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing here. Had Hezekiah not prayed, not cried out to God, he would have died. But for whatever reason, God had determined that should Hezekiah cry out to him, turn to him, uh, seek to align himself with him, he would spare him at this time and add to him more time, 15 years, upon the earth. Now this leads us to our next observation, our next point for consideration. Here's the question. Can prayer really change things? Can prayer alter the route that God would take if otherwise left untouched, uninterceded, unapproached? Well, clearly, scripturally, the answer is yes. And this is a real difficulty for some people because there are some who lean so hard upon the sovereignty of God that they would say that prayer is essentially irrelevant. I mean, after all, God has a plan and and God is going to do what God is going to do, so why do we even pray? Now, of course, to assume that kind of position is to rebel, isn't it, against the uh, Word of God that exhorts us, instructs us, commands us that we are to be a people of prayer, that we're to let our requests be made known to God, that we're to stand in the gap on behalf of people. You know, I mean, write it down again. We can, you can read it later. It's in Ezekiel chapter 22. It's verses 23 through 31. And you find there God wanting to show mercy, wanting to uh, spare a people His judgment. He said, so I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, who would intercede on their behalf, but I found no one. And so He poured out His wrath upon the people. God would have us to be a people of prayer. But there's a great responsibility in prayer as well, isn't there? Wouldn't you agree? Because within the context of God allowing us to, in some way and somehow, and for whatever reason in His wisdom, He allows us to partner with Him, and even the the moving many times of His hand, it necessarily brings into focus another question, and that is this. Will God allow us... I want you to think about this. Will God allow us to move His hand in ways that may not be the best, but if we insist on our way, He will at times allow the way we want rather than the way He would prefer. 
Now again, guys, a strict study of Scripture is going to show you the answer to that question is yes. God will allow... I mean, look, I think I can pretty easily help you understand what I'm saying here. All you got to do is look around at our society. God will allow us to operate, operate pardon me, outside what we might refer to as His perfect will. Now, we know that the Bible says, now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of Him. But is that to say that if you ask something outside of His will, that He never hears you? It doesn't say that, does it? Or that He will never grant you anything that's not in direct line with what we might call the perfect or preferred will? It doesn't say that either. Let me put it like this before we wind up chasing this trail down a direction never intended or that's not appropriate. God has, again, I'm going to use the word, God has a perfect will for each of us, right? I mean like a preferred plan, the way He would desire that we order our lives. Would you agree to that? But if you study the Scripture, you have to conclude that God also has what we might refer to as a permissive will. Does this make sense? So there is a perfect, there is a permissive. In other words, it's not what God prefers for you, but He will permit it if I stubbornly insist upon it. Case in point, Numbers chapter 22, Balak, the king of the the Moabites. He sends for the prophet Balaam. How many of you are familiar with this situation? There's a few of you, well, then you can write it down and read it later. I don't have time to go through it all. But Numbers chapter 22, Balak, the king of the Moabites, sends for Balaam. He is a prophet, and he wants him to come, and he wants him to curse the children of Israel. He says, man, I'm worried. These people are coming through. They're wiping everyone out. I want you to come. I want you to place a curse upon them. And Balaam prays, and he says, God, can I go and, 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 and do the bidding of the king here? He's wanting me to go and look up on a mountain, overlook your people, and give a, a curse, you know, pour out a court curse upon the people. And I mean, I'm going to give you, I'm only going to give you one guess what God's answer was. He said, no, you can't do that. Don't go. And so Balaam goes to the emissaries, the ambassadors of the king that had come to request his presence. He says, listen, I've spent the night in prayer. I can't go. God says, no. So they go back to the king. They tell him the king sends him back with like this, uh, like, the, like a lottery amount of money, you know, like, uh, you know, so he just sends him treasures and all these says, look, we'll give you this incredible, unbelievable counter offer of money. You'll be set up for your life, your children's children and their children. You got nothing to worry about. Please just come and do it. And Balaam prays again, please, God, please, 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 God, can I go? Long story short, eventually God says, fine. If that's what you want, go. And you can read of the whole thing. God permitted him to go. Let him have his way. Now, in the end, it did not fare well for him. He should have honored what God told him the first time. Guys, even as it pertains to God's perfect will for mankind, what does the Bible say? God is not willing. He's not wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But if man insists upon his own way, God will permit man to go to hell if that's what he insists upon. 
through rebellion and refusal to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it seems to me that God's initial directive to Hezekiah was the plan. Set your house in order. You're going to die. You're not going to live. Hezekiah prays. God hears him, responds to him immediately. By the way, another little quick side point. There are times that we pray, God hears, He acts immediately. Other times there may be weeks or months or years of patient waiting involved. And I'm just going to tell you, I wish I knew the why uh, or the what for behind all of that. And there are obviously a number of things that could be in play. Sometimes it's a simple matter of, of God's timing, right? And ultimately, sovereignly, and all of that. I mean, God may share what, but it, I find that it's rare that God shares when. You know what I'm saying? And so we just pray and we wait. Other times there's spiritual warfare involved. You can write this down, Daniel chapter 10. Don't think that when you're praying to advance God's cause or God's kingdom or you want to gain some sort of understanding, some sort of insight, that the enemy just sits back and does nothing. Right? I mean, he goes to work. He wants to hinder, wants to frustrate, irritate, and exasperate this person who's praying. If he can convince you to quit, then perhaps he can thwart the prayer request altogether. I'm just going to encourage you with this. If it's, if you have found it in your heart to pray for something, to pray for someone, don't quit. Jesus said, seek. He said, knock. He said, Ask. And every one of those verbs is in the present perfect tense. Seek and keep seeking. Don't quit seeking. Ask. Keep asking. Don't quit asking. Knock. Keep knocking. Don't stop knocking. Keep on keeping on is how we would say it until God, you either see the answer, right? whether it be a yes or a no, or God lays it in your heart. Look, it's time to quit praying for that. Until you have that directive, listen, you pray. Now, in this case, Hezekiah received an answer before Isaiah even got out the door. And he said, I've heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. Listen, and maybe this is a word for you today. God is not indifferent to your pain. You need to know that. He sees you. He hears you. His heart is for you. And he tells Hezekiah, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to defend this city. So now we see what's happening on the other side of the wall as the Assyrians are coming. He's getting this word that he's going to be delivered. He's, he's go I mean, what grace, health, deliverance, defense. He says, I, I got you here. Okay. Now, look at verse 7, guys. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which He has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees backward. And so the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Now there's no real reason to wonder how God did this. He's God. Okay? And uh, it, I find it kind of a poetic kind of miracle in that he added more time to the day, even as he was going to add more time to Hezekiah's life. And, and, you know, there's a few more details to it you find in the Kings, but 
That's what's happening here. Now look at verse 9. And this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go down. This is a lament, right? Isaiah comes to him, says, you're going to die. This is what happens in his heart. In the prime of my life, I shall go down to the gates of Sheol, that is the grave. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night you made an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, and so he breaks all my bones. From day and until pardon me, from day until night you make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, I've chattered, I've mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. Now, what's the take home in this section of scripture? Life is never a guarantee. You are not guaranteed next year. You are not guaranteed next month. You are not guaranteed the next five minutes. Guys, that is why there is such an urgency about the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. If you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Don't delay. Don't put it off another day. The one thing guaranteed in this passage is that life is temporary. Life is transitory. It, it can be folded down and taken away like a shepherd's tent. It can be cut off. He says, my life is like hanging by a thread, like the weaver cuts that final thread of material from the loom when the project has come to completion. David said, there is but a step between me and death. In the New Testament vernacular, we read it like this, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And guys, the idea behind each of these illustrations is the same. Life is fragile and at best temporary. And therefore, we do well to consider carefully our eternal destiny. Life, this life, is but for a moment. What happens next, hear me, is forever. Where should my priority lie? Now again, Hezekiah is living with a cloudy understanding of what happens when he dies. For you, in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ, for the sake of redundancy, I say death has no sting, has no victory. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ over death through the power of the resurrection. Praise God. Hezekiah had no concept of any of that, and so he asked God to let him live, and, and God says yes. Now, look at verse 15. He says, what shall I say? In other words, like he's, after God shows him this kindness, he's like, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me, and he himself has done it, I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. 
Indeed, it was for my own peace. In other words, he's like, I wasn't really crying out for the glory of God. I was worried about it. He's being honest. He said, I, I, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you, notice, have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments. All the days of our life in the house of the Lord. In the house of the Lord. Somebody underline it. In the house of the Lord. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It is biblical. It is good to render praise unto God in the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. Guys, here it is. God has given me His Word. He alone has saved me. He alone has delivered me. He alone will restore me. I will walk with Him, render honor and praise to Him. I will walk carefully before Him all the days of my life. Oh, God help us that we walk carefully before Him, that is, intentionally honoring Him all the days of our life. Guys, there is no one else who can save you. There is no one else who can restore or deliver your soul from the pit of corruption. There is no one else who can cast all of your sins behind His back. We owe Him everything. May we walk before Him carefully, intentionally, you see, all the days of our lives. Two quick observations, guys. We're not far from finished. Number one, I want you to look at verse 19. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Now, I, I, I realize, guys, I recognize that there are broken homes everywhere. There's not fathers in every home. And, and if you're a single mom and you're striving and you're struggling and you're doing what you can, God's grace is sufficient. But dad, lead your family. Can you hear me, dads? Lead your family. Be the man that God is calling you to be. Make known God's truth to your children. That's number one. Number two, verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. I love that. Maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ. Listen to me, God is ready to save you. He is there. He just call upon Him, cry out to Him. He will deliver your soul from the pit of corruption and cast all your sins behind His back. Isn't that good news? Now, just so you know, guys, and I want to bring something into focus for you here, just for consideration. Three years after this, Hezekiah would father a son. And his, how many of you Bible students know Hezekiah's son's name? Anybody know it? Come on, say it. Good job, you two. Manasseh, okay? Now, Manasseh was the single most wicked king of the entire dynasty Israel, Judah put together. Um, now, he did repent in the end. But the evil that he did 
in the sight of the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, was unconscionable. It brings us back to the thought, would Hezekiah have been better off to simply go with what God instructed in the first place? Perhaps it's worthless to speculate, right? Because all we can do is speculate. But again, I believe best to leave our lot in the hands of the Lord. Nevertheless, God, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we're getting ready to roll this chapter out. How did God perform Hezekiah's healing? I mean... Did he have Isaiah pray over him, lay hands on him so that he fell back in some dramatic fashion or something like that? Let's look together at exactly what happened. Verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. And Hezekiah said, had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Remember, he, he could, as a sick man, he wasn't allowed to go to the house of the Lord. God would tell him in three days he would go to the house of the Lord and the sign would be the sundial. That's where that comes from. God promised him a miraculous healing. He did it through what was a common medical procedure in that day. Guys, we pray for healing, listen to me, and we take our medicine, okay? Go to the doctor, We do not despise the gifts of God through medical science. I don't know exactly what this looked like. I doubt that it looked like Fig Newton's crumbled up on there, but we kind of get that that picture. He got a lump of figs and, you know, made some sort of poultice and laid it on there. And, and, and you know, but, but God did the work. And he confirmed it that he would be completely healed through the sign on the sundial. Okay, guys, are you still with me? We're going to run through this. Hold on. Verse 1, chapter 39. We won't be long. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And uh, Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious uh, ointment, and all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in the house of all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, if there's something, you're reading through this, and you're going, this doesn't, this doesn't set with me real well. You know, uh, that's because it shouldn't. Uh, Babylon, at this time, they were not a superpower, okay? They were up and coming. They were like a junior superpower. They were in the developing stages. It'd be about another hundred years or so before they were a, a global dominating force. But Judah was just seen as a little kind of podunk, backwoods kind of kingdom. And Hezekiah, man, he was flattered. And wow, news of me has reached all the way up to Babylon. And not only that, they've even sent these ambassadors. Even the king's son has come to give me a gift and congratulate me on the recovery. And Man, this was just inflating him, you see. And he was all too eager to show them, look, we're not this little backwoods, podunk kind of kingdom. You think we are? We got some stuff. Okay. Now, much of Solomon's wealth was still in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, again, and we know this from the other passages in the Kings and stuff, was inflated in his pride over this. And he was eager to impress them with all of his wealth, all of his resources. And guess what? He did. Oh man, it impressed him. He showed him everything. And guys, as we're kind of making our way toward the wrap down and wind up, I guess... 
This is the difference in wanting to serve men. Listen, this is the difference in wanting to serve men, which is a good thing. To serve mankind is good. Uh, and wanting to be pleasing to men, which is bad. Do you understand the, the difference here? Uh, we're to be God-pleasers. Hezekiah is seeking to be a man-pleaser here. He's wanting to impress them. He's wanting their accolades. He's wanting their wows and their oohs and all of this. He's not looking to bring honor and glory to God. He, he's looking for the praise and recognition of man. But what, here's what's going to happen. Again, guys, it brings us back to, was it the wisest thing for him to be healed in this regard? Because A, he fathered a son who was an incredibly wicked man. And B, he showed Babylon all the treasure, all the wealth, everything he had. And so guess what's going to happen? These guys, they're going to go back to Babylon and the boy is going to talk to his dad. And he's going to be, Dad, you ain't going to believe what we've seen. This guy has more wealth than you could possibly imagine. And so when Babylon begins to rise up in the world and needs resources, needs money, needs treasure to fund the campaign, their war against the nations, guess who they're going to come visit? They're going to come right here and they're going to take it all. Well... I, I've jumped the gun. I've the spoiler alert. Look at verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to him. I'm telling you guys, I just, the more I study Isaiah, the more I like this guy. He's just dry. You know, he's to the point. Uh, I could kind of be akin to that. It's sometimes it's hard to hard to to be the affectionate one, you know. Ask my wife. I'm a little more like this, you know. And Hezekiah the prophet went to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? And so Hezekiah said, Man, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And so he answered, Man, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my treasures that I haven't shown them. We kinda, he's clueless. He's kind of like proud. You know? He's like, Man, I showed them everything, Isaiah. You should have seen them, man. They were really impressed. Look at verse 5. By the way, we're closing here. Are you my closer? You want to come on? Look at verse 5. <laughs> and then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. A uh, quick word of trivia for you Bible students. One of the descendants of Hezekiah whom the king of Babylon would take and have him serve in his palace would be Daniel. Daniel, yep. And finally here in verse 8. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah... The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Guys, I don't know if there's a good way to look at this last verse. He essentially, he essentially here comes Isaiah and says, listen, buddy, what would you show him? He says, man, I showed him everything. He said, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to take everything. And they're going to take your sons, and they're going to make them eunuchs, and they're going to serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Hezekiah goes, wow, that's good. At least, at least nothing's going to happen during my day. Let me leave you with this. Hezekiah had said that he would honor. We just read it, right? We read it in chapter, what, 38? He said, man, I'm going to walk carefully before you. I'm going to do everything I can do to honor you all the days of my life. And then you get the cut scene. And there's the Babylonians. He's like, man, check this out. Man, check this out. And Here's what I'm saying. That was only going to happen. And this is why I brought this up. That was only going to happen if Hezekiah was intentional about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? He had to serve God, honor God intentionally. You're not going to mature. I just want to leave you with this. You're not going to mature in godliness in some magical way over time. You know, we talk about this. I kind of make a joke about this sometimes where we think that we go to bed at night and we pray and so some kind of you know, pixie dust or something is sprinkled over us. We wake up the next morning, we're a little more like Jesus. Um, all time is going to do is come and go. It's going to come, it's going to go. That's it. What matters is what you do with the time. How you use the time. Guys, you got to put the work in. you got to study God's Word. And so, may God help us to serve Him and to honor Him, to give glory and praise to Him all the days of our lives. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we acknowledge You as the giver and the taker of life. Our lives, oh God, are in Your hands. And so we pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit, that You would empower us, that You would embolden us to live for You. God, that we might bring glory to You all of our days, Lord. We want to be a people of prayer. Lord, we want to be a people who would stand in the gap that Your kingdom come, that Your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so I pray, Lord, that You would help us to be mindful and careful and intentional about leading lives set apart to You. And I would just say, if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, God's will for you is that you be saved. And if you're not walking in the reality of that, hey, listen, call upon Him today. Don't leave here today without getting your heart in His hands. There's no guarantees beyond this moment. And I would be remiss to not extend the opportunity to you to turn from your sin, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be saved. You know, and I could go through the gamut, but I don't think I need to convince anyone here that they're a sinner. I think we all know that we've all blown it. We've all fallen short. We've all messed up. We've all, the Bible calls that sin. But if we'll confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Philippian jailer serves, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no underlying trick or bait and switch. It's that simple. And so if that's where you're at today, I want to pray for you before we get out of here. If you need Jesus Christ to come into your heart, into your life, forgive you of your sin, make you new, would you raise your hand and let me pray for you? If you know the Lord and you're trusting in the Lord, I think that's great. But I just want to give that opportunity. If you're here, I want you to worry about who's around you or anything else just between you and the Lord. Is anybody in that place?
God bless you, man. God bless you. I see you. You Put your hand down. Anybody else? Don't be shy, man. I'm telling you. Don't miss your moment. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, as I just said, the Bible's clear that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But this is where we get real and we get raw with the Lord and we confess who we are. We don't make excuses for who we are. We humble ourselves. Listen to me. God resists the proud. That is, He sets Himself in order against the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. And it's by grace that you're saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. It's the kindness of God. It's not about what we do, it's about what He's done, lest any man should boast. And so if you're saying to your, you know, in your own heart, God, I need you, I want to be right with you, I just want to get all of this clear and out of the way, well, then just come to Him and say, God, here I am. And I'm not making excuses. I'm not trying to justify myself. I confess that I am a sinner and I fall short of your glory, O oh God. But I turn from my sin and I put my trust in you. Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart, into my life, and would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And I'm asking you, God, to strengthen me, to empower me, to embolden me to live for you from this day forward all my days. That I would walk carefully before you, oh God, all the days of my life. And thank you for putting my name in your book of life. 